I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax News listeners, on this edition of the program, it's the final entry in our Spooky Season Specials, and we may have well saved the best for last, as the incredibly knowledgeable film historian Troy Howarth joins us to discuss horror cinema from the Italian Yellow film to John Carpenter's Halloween. Troy is the author of such books as The Haunted World of Mario Baba, So Deadly, So Perverse, 50 Years of Italian Yellow Films, and Assault on the System, the Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter. In this conversation, we cover a great deal of ground from the films of Italian masters of the macabre. Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci, to the Hammer Studios horrors of the late 1950s through to the 1970s. We even managed to discuss the controversial Spanish filmmaker Jess Franco, whose films have developed a dedicated cult following, despite others writing him off as nothing more than a hack. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with film historian Troy Howard. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to have on. Uh, he's written a number of books about uh, cult cinema, 
uh, Euro cult cinema, especially. And I'm a big fan of his work. I've read his work on such great directors as Dario Argento and Mario Bava. And I'm looking forward to reading his new book, Make Them Die Slowly, The Kinetic Cinema of Umberto Lenzi, which I believe came out on October 7th. He's also written So Deadly, So Perverse, 50 Years of Italian Yellow Films, and a number, a number of other books, uh, including a great book on uh, John Carpenter, Assault on the System, The Nonconformist Cinema of John Carpenter. Welcome to the show, Troy Howarth. How are you doing tonight? Good. I hope I can live up to that intro. So, Troy, if you could, maybe uh, we could start by talking about uh, your journey um, as as a, a cinephile and a, a scholar of uh, sort of cult and Euro cinema. Well, um, that's that's yeah. a big question. I know. I I don't want to bore everybody. Um, I don't know how interesting this is to anybody, but feel free to tell me to shut up at any point. Um, I come from a small town in uh, in Pennsylvania, not not far from Pittsburgh, uh, which is where George Romero made his best known films, of course. Um, Grew up in the 80s and uh, is obviously goes without saying it's a very different time uh, in terms of accessibility of films and so forth. It's not like today, uh, not to sound like an old fart, but, you know, uh, everything really is at your fingertips these days. It, it, if, if it's not on disc, chances are it's on YouTube. It's somewhere. It's something you're going to find it. And it's relatively easy. Uh, growing up in the 80s, it was very much dependent on what was on TV or what was at your local video store. Um, so, I mean, fortunately I grew up in a household that was, uh, obviously very tolerant uh, as far as my interests, which I, I don't have a seminal moment where I can say that's what made me a horror movie buff. I I've loved this stuff for as long as I can remember. Um, I can give you an example that my maternal grandmother died when I was not even quite three years old and she had made comments about me liking this stuff. Uh, which is is bizarre, uh, but you know my my mom was interested in horror films and uh, she was a big fan of things like uh, the Hammer films, for example, and Vincent Price, but also The Exorcist, The Omen, Rosemary's Baby, stuff like that. So I I grew up on movies like this. My parents had no problem with me watching. Very very few films were forbidden, and of course, when something is forbidden, it becomes you have to see it. So it didn't happen very often. Um, I was taken to see movies that, you know, a lot of people would say, what is wrong with you taking a child to see? But they, they always explained to me that it was make-believe, that it was fake, that it wasn't real. And so, I mean, the, the consequence of that is that in real life, I'm a I'm, I'm total non-confrontational person. I hate the sight of blood. It makes me sick. But I can handle anything in a movie. Um, so as a very, very, very young child, I was most interested in the old school Universal films, Karloff, Lugosi, uh, Lionel Atwell, Basil Rathbone, stuff like that. As I get a little bit older, uh, become really, really passionate about Hammer films for a long time. I, I love the Hammer way, films so much. I do you know, too. not not I just the it. ones with like Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, but you had all kinds of great actors. You know, Michael Ripper was in all those small roles. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, Mac Michael Ripper did more movies than Cushing and Lee combined. For Hammer. I mean, he was in a ton of them. Um, yeah, there, there's a joke that Cushing used to tell, I believe, where he would say to Christopher Lee, do you ever feel like we're making, uh, instead of a Hammer movie or a Peter Cushing or a Christopher Lee movie, are we really making a Michael Ripper movie? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he was kind of the mascot, and he did do a ton of them. 
Uh, a lot of really good actors, though, were in Hammer films. I mean, they they really pulled from the best of the British theater. They had actors like Eric Porter, uh, Andre Morel, um, John Carson, uh, you know, various people who aren't terribly well-known in the U.S., but they added a lot of class to their movies. So I loved those movies as a kid. Were you also did. a fan of the uh, the other British studios? Like, I, I have to be honest. Amicus? I love Hammer, but I'm a big, I'm an even bigger fan of Amicus, Yeah. <laughs> I like Amicus. Um, I don't think Amicus ever quite hit the same heights as Hammer is very best. They also made a lot less films. Um, so it's kind of difficult to compare them because Amicus really was, you know, it was really a going concern only for better, you know, about a decade, decade and a half, really, versus Hammer, which was, you know, established back in the 1930s and went through various different iterations until we get into that period, the 50s through the mid 70s, where they really. You know, they knocked it out of the park one film after another. Lots of, you know, classic horror films, but also adventure films um, and other things. Amicus, obviously, unlike Hammer, tended to specialize in modern day films. Um, and they also specialized in the anthology format, which Hammer never did. Hammer never did an anthology horror film. Um, one of my favorite films from the time I was a child and uh, a movie that remains a favorite is The House of Your Blood, uh, which is my favorite of the Amicus anthologies, uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing both in it, Denim Elliott, John Pertwee, he was best known for playing Doctor Who. Um, so I love that film, From Beyond the Grave, Asylum, The Skull. I mean, they made a lot of, of wonderful films too. Uh, American International, of course, during that time too in America, but also they made films in England. A couple of the last Edgar Allan Poe films, the last two, in fact, Mask of the Red Death, Tomb of Idea, were done in England. And then they did all these other things like Scream and Scream Again and uh, The Abominable Dr. Fives in the UK. So they made a lot of good stuff. Tygon was another company that made some interesting films. Yeah, like I, I love movies know. like uh, that. the Tygon one, I think, was um, that I saw really young was The Ghoul with Peter Cushing. Uh, yeah, that was Tyburn. Tyburn oh, okay, was okay. similar company. It actually was kind of a knockoff of Hammer, really, because it was uh, started up by Kevin Francis, who's the son of Freddie Francis, who's the Oscar-winning cinematographer who directed a bunch of movies uh, in the horror genre, even though he hated horror films, but he, he made some good ones. Um, but Kevin Francis started this kind of knockoff hammer company, and he hired a lot of the same people. Michael Ripper uh, was in at least one of the films. Uh, Peter Cushing was in several of them. Uh, Freddie Francis, of course, directed uh, a couple of them, so... It's really yeah, interesting uh, that, that you were a big fan of the British horror films because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I grew up in like the, you know, I started watching these movies when I was, you know, probably like 12 years old in the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, I actually am from Pittsburgh, too. And we had a specialty video store called Incredibly Strange Videos. So I'd be, yeah. you know, renting all these movies. And I started out with the British horror movies. Um, so I was always like a huge fan of like Donald Pleasance and um, Christopher Lee. So there was, there's something about those British movies that is like very appealing to me. I've, I've never really quite put my finger on it. They're very, they're very unusual because they, they sort of have their own culture. You know, we had the hippies, they sort of had like mod culture. It's, it's, they're very interesting films. They're sort of like time capsules. Yeah, they, they definitely have a different quality to them. They have a very literate quality. They tend to be very focused on um, on story and character in a way that isn't always necessarily true of Italian films, for example, which are more about mood, atmosphere, visual. Um, so a lot of the, the Hammer films, the Amicus films and so forth tend to be very, uh, very sort of story driven in a way, but also acting driven. And again, that 
that's where Amicus, in particular, Amicus was very clever because working in the anthology format, they were able to get these big stars to come in and do roles that they'd only have to be on the set for a day or two. To get Ralph Richardson to play the Crypt Keeper in Tales from the Crypt, you could get Nigel Green to play an inspector in the skull. You could get, you know, all these wonderful actors who, if you had to commission them to star in a film, you know, where they would be there for several weeks, it would have been impossible. But because you only needed them for a few days, it, they, they got all these wonderful actors uh, very cheap. Because also, during that period of time in the 70s, too, the British film industry was going through a little bit of a crisis. And uh, there weren't a lot. I mean, unless you're talking about like the James Bond films or some of the big like World War II all-star action movies that were being made, there weren't a lot of big films being made. David Lean would make a movie, you know, like once, once every few years or once a decade after a certain point. So a lot of people were looking for work. So you would have uh, Bernard Lee playing M in the James Bond movies. That's a running gig for him until he dies. But he's got some downtime. So he'll show up in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell playing a, an asylum inmate. He'll show up in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors playing a, uh, a, a small supporting part. And it always added to the marquee value of these films. It's, it's interesting, too, because uh, with those British horror films, especially the Hammer films, when I talk to British friends of mine of a certain age that are like a little bit too young for the Hammer films, or they they maybe grew up on like um, you know slasher movies and whatnot, yeah. they'll always sort of look at me and be like, "I don't get why you like these these Hammer films. We sort of see them as like cheesy." And you know, I mean, there's been you know British TV series all based around spoofing the old mm -hmm. Hammer films, but there is like a real artistry. Uh, to some of the Hammer films, I think Terrence Fisher was an extremely talented director. And, you know, I think Freddie Francis uh, as a director is very interesting, especially with movies like um, uh, I think it was Mumsy, Nanny, Girly and Sonny. Uh, but do, do you think uh, the Hammer films sort of get short thrifted at times? It depends. I mean, when they first came out in the 50s, 60s and 70s, critics didn't take them seriously. They tended to be dismissed. Um, they tended to be looked down on. Um, the actors sometimes were, were kind of conditioned to feel a little bit embarrassed. Um, Christopher Lee got a little touchy about it sometimes because the British press was, was really nasty uh, and would make very condescending comments and, and really made it difficult for him sometimes to uh, kind of get over this, this kind of um, self-consciousness about doing them. Um, well, also, they had gone so far away. By the 70s, they went so far away from you know, what the original Bram Stoker's Dracula was all about, you know, well, and, and I yeah. think Lee would complain about that. Yeah. Lee, Lee's complaints of, with Dracula um, were certainly totally justified. He never had an issue with playing the character. He never had an issue with the first two films. He always spoke well of them, the two that Terrence Fisher directed. He always spoke well of those films. He always acknowledged the, the importance of that character in his career. Um, but when it got to a place where he felt like he was just expected to sort of pop in and out of the shadows and deliver an odd line and, and the stories really weren't revolving around the character, he was very frustrated. And Cushing said the same thing. He said, you know, it's all well and good me playing Frankenstein because the stories are revolving around me and I've got things to do. Christopher really wants to act and he's not being given an opportunity to act because all he's expected to do is stand there and glare at people with contact lenses. So it was frustrating for him. Um, but nowadays, I, I think Hammer and Amicus have been sort of rehabilitated critically. But as far as any kind of generational thing is concerned, I mean, you're always going to have that. There is there's a thing that happens with people, uh, you know, especially uh, 
younger people, you know, who are not really conditioned to old films, quote unquote old films. My definition of what an old film is is very different from what other people will say. Um, I've had people tell me uh, something from the, the 90s is an old film, and I'm just like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, it blows my mind when people say, like, a movie from the 2000s, it's an old movie. I'm like, what? It's not. <laughs> and even in my opinion, even 70s isn't old from my point. Maybe it's because I was born in the 70s. I don't know. Um, yeah, I can understand saying about 40s films, maybe 50s films, you know, 30s and whatnot. But there does seem to be this mentality that old equals cheesy, which is a word I hate. Um, I avoid it like the plague. I think it's extremely uh, aggravating uh, and, and mindless kind of thing that's thrown at movies that are people seem to think, especially, again, younger people, and I'm generalizing, but it tends to be the case that they think irony is a new concept. So if they see an, an, a film like Dr. Fives, for example, and they start laughing at it, they think, oh, it's just, it's, it's cheesy. No, it's meant to be funny. That movie was done with a tremendous sense of humor, but people don't always realize that because they think, oh, it's just old cheesy. Well, even the movie I mentioned, Gurley, that I, I love that movie. Uh, it's my favorite Freddie Francis movie. It's very clearly meant as a dark comedy. So a lot of oh, these yeah. movies have darkly comedic elements in them. No, you know, Freddie, Freddie Francis, like I said, really didn't like horror films, and he was very frustrated with making them after a certain point because he didn't want to keep doing them. Um, and he did go back to cinematography, which, you know, obviously he ended up working with David Lynch and Martin Scorsese and whatnot, so he, he made a good choice. But uh, he always liked that film in particular because he thought it was very funny, and it was, it was a, a dark comedy that really appealed to him, so he really liked that film. Um, it is one of the few films he made from that period of his career that I think holds up fairly well and, and is an interesting film because a lot of the other ones tend to be fairly sort of flat. You can kind of feel his heart isn't in it anymore. Whereas if you look at the stuff he did in the 60s, um, especially The Skull, which I love, I mean, The Skull has about 20 minutes worth of plot and it works as a 90 minute film beautifully because it's all visual, very visual. His background is as a cinematographer. Terrence Fisher's background was as an editor. So Fisher's films tend to be a little bit more sort of editorially based. Um, whereas uh, Francis' films are a little bit more flashy visually. But uh, you mentioned Fisher already before. I mean, yes, he was, a, he was a great director. He had a tremendous run of great films within this genre, starting with The Curse of Frankenstein and going all the way to the end of his career with Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. So he definitely made a tremendous mark. So with regards to the, the Hammer uh, films, especially the ones that are you know considered classics like you know Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, uh, what do you think has led to the critical uh, sort of reevaluation of these films? Because I, I do think, I mean, even with the Terrence Fisher films, I think there's a lot of um, attention to detail. I think they're really exquisitely crafted, especially those early ones. What for you uh, is the sort of quality uh, that makes it important to revisit those films? Well, I think the fact that he approached his work seriously, that it was it, it, he was really good. And one of the things he drove for was to make the fantastic seem credible. So he always wanted to root his films in a, in a kind of realistic context. Now, he would every now and again in a film like The Gorgon or Brides of Dracula do something that was really kind of poetic, magical, al almost felt sort of Italian. Uh, those films have that slightly more irrational fairy tale kind of quality to them, whereas the other films, very often you can tell he's really, he wants to create an atmosphere that is credible and believable. These people seem like real human beings. They're, they're, you know, they, they have a certain inner logic and the story makes sense on that level. Um, 
but he approaches them dead seriously. I mean, there's humor in them. There's definitely some dark comedy in the film, especially you get some of the character actors like Miles Mallison as the Undertaker in Dracula, or or Michael Ripper playing, you know, whether it's a coach driver or a policeman or uh, a grave robber or whatever. The Mummy, he's wonderful in The Mummy playing the uh, poacher. Um, that's pulled in by the police inspector, and he says, oh, he was like 10 foot high. And, uh, how high? Oh, 7 foot 6? Thinks of something like that. You know, he's very, very funny, and he, he knew how to steal scenes like that. So he was really good at, you know, just approaching these films with dignity and approaching them with a real appreciation of his audience, quite frankly, which I think translates. At the time, people were so caught off guard by the graphic quality of them. They, they seemed to be excessive at that time, which is hard to understand now because you, you, you show these films on TV completely uncut during the day. They're perfectly fine. But in the late 50s, early 60s, these films were pretty strong stuff. Something like Curse of the Werewolf in 1961 was very strong. And for years, that movie was censored. There were a lot of things that were cut out of that film that are now available. Um, we've all seen, you know, when the werewolf gets shot at the end and the blood spurts out of his chest. That was cut for years. Uh, that was that was may have been the earliest squib hit I can think of in a movie, honestly. It was pretty gory for the time. Um, but... He, he was good with his actors, so he encouraged his actors to play it seriously. Uh, don't approach it tongue-in-cheek. You know, give it its due respect. And in the, in the process, treated his audience with respect. So I think over time, eventually after that sort of initial outrage wore away, and also bearing in mind, it's like John Carpenter said, you know, for many people, horror is just one step above porn. Um, there is this kind of snobby attitude towards horror. I, I always tell general. people, I feel like um, horror and a lot of times comedy – get treated as like the the lowbrow end of cinema yeah. and i think it's unfair at times well yeah i mean comedy is very hard i mean most 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 quote-unquote serious actors want to do comedy and most uh most comedy actors want to do drama i mean they they want to show that they can do it um chris Lee hosted an episode of saturday night live in the late 70s for example 78 i think it was um and he was very funny on it you know given an opportunity he could do something like that uh uh, so it's not an easy thing to really pull off a comedy and to make it successfully. And some people have failed very badly trying to do so. And it's also very hard to pull off horror, if we're honest. I mean, people people act as if these films uh, don't take a, a certain technical skill. But if you actually want to scare the audience, you know, it, it does take a certain technical skill, even even with something as small as a jump scare, like a good jump scare can be very hard to pull off. But, you know, the other kind of scares that exist that don't rely on jump scares, that's even harder. Well, John Carpenter is the master of the jump scare. He always downplays it because he's, he's a very unpretentious man and he, he'll say, oh, it's just a cheap trick. He does it well because he has this extraordinary sense of timing and rhythm, which I think comes from his background as a musician. He understands how to do these things. Most films that try to really make you jump, they'll rely too much on a, on a loud sound effect or, or something that you can see coming from a mile away. Carpenter in movies like Halloween, The Fog, Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, um, uh, The Thing, and others really pulled off some magnificent jump scares. And that's not something that should be treated lightly. That really takes it very precise. It's like the story about Jaws. There's a scene in, in Jaws where they find the body uh, in, in the sunken ship, you know, and, the, and they're, they're looking. And the scene just didn't work, didn't work, and didn't work until they just got it just right and then all of a sudden everybody jumped out of their seat yeah it's it's interesting because the horror genre is and i know we're going a little way from hammer right now but horror in general th there is sort of a parallel there with comedy because 
it really is all about the timing, you know, both in comedy and in horror. Well, it's it's uh, it's a razor's edge, too, between comedy and horror. If you time it wrong or if you do it wrong, it's going to be funny. Um, so they're very closely linked. And it's not surprising, therefore, that a lot of horror films do have comedy in them. Um, you know, it, it was the standard thing in the 30s and 40s. You had to have the comedy relief figure. There was usually some drunk or a hysterical maid or a servant or somebody that was, you know, really nervous and scared. And would be the kind of comedy relief character who would come in every now and again, like in Bride of Frankenstein. You get the uh, Uno O'Connor, you know, his mini coming in every now and again and shrieking and getting hysterical or the pompous Burgermaster coming in or something like that. Uh, that was kind of the standard thing for a long time. And into Hammer films, too, especially um, especially a lot of the early ones. Uh, you would get somebody, again, like Michael uh, Michael Ripper or Miles Mallison, uh, usually playing a kind of comedy figure that they're just kind of, you know, decompress it a little bit. What what can happen is the same thing with drama, too. If you see a film that is, you know, sort of relentlessly bleak and relentlessly just grim, you do reach a point where you run the risk of it becoming unintentionally funny because it's it's just, you know, it's the story of the guy who gets out of bed and he stubs his toe first thing in the morning. Every single thing that happens after that goes wrong. You pile on enough grief after a certain point, chances are people are going to laugh at it. So then get, getting back to Hammer, and I do want to get into like Euro horror, um, but but what do you think led to the downfall of Hammer? Because they go from making sort of these, I, I would say, almost like serious considerations of horror with like a horror of Dracula and, and Curse of Frankenstein to, you know, I, I think why they get made fun of by some people is you know, they start making like the Ingrid Pitt, you know, lesbian vampire movies. But even, even some of those later Hammer movies, I'm actually very fond of things like uh, – demons of the mind and yeah. to the devil a daughter. But I, I think people look at the later films as being, I guess, maybe like sleazier or more exploitative. Is that what led to the downfall? What What do you uh, uh, pin it to? It wasn't just Hammer. It was the low budget film industry in general. I mean, a lot of things happened. There were there was a seismic shift which took place uh, beginning in 1968. You had on one end of the spectrum, Roman Polanski making Rosemary's Baby for Paramount Pictures. And then you have, on the other end of the spectrum, George Romero making Night of the Living Dead in rural Pennsylvania. Then in between that, too, you've got Michael Reeves making Witchfinder General with Vincent Price, where suddenly Vincent Price isn't the sort of prissy, campy guy that we, we've grown to love in, in these movies that he's been making in horror films for the last decade. Now he's playing a real nasty piece of work, and he's a really genuinely frightening character in that film. So the genre changed, um, the low-budget film scene in general changed. All those companies went belly up during that period of time. Amicus went down the tubes, Tygon went down the tubes, AIP eventually went down the tubes. Yeah, I was going to say, I think AIP's last big one in the 70s was probably like the Amityville Horror. And then they really, they, they sort of went downhill after that, yeah. It all, it just, it just changed. All of a sudden, The Exorcist, I think in particular, I mean, Rosemary's Baby had been a huge hit, make no mistake, but The Exorcist came out. And uh, it, it was a bonanza in its own right. And I think that just sent the message to studios, hey, we can make these movies and we can make a big profit. So then you get things like uh, uh, The Omen and various other films, I mean, that are coming out. You're getting big name actors attached to them, Gregory Peck and Max von Sydow and, you know, actors like that that you don't associate with horror films. So all of a sudden it goes from being a kind of cottage industry into something that was really big. And it just changed. I mean, the whole the whole landscape changed. The, the kind of conventional thinking is that Hammer peaked in the 60s, around the mid-60s, with things like Plague of the Zombies and Dracula, Prince of Darkness. 
Um, I actually think they made some of their most interesting films in the 70s. I love Demons of the Mind. I love To the Devil Daughter. Hence the Ripper, I think, is definitely in their top 10, without a question. One of the best films they ever made. Um, they, they did start the decade off really, really poorly with a trio of films that I think really, if, if you want people to think that Hammer's crap or campy or cheesy or whatever, you're going to show them Scars of Dracula, Horror of Frankenstein, or Lust for a Vampire. Three films made in rapid succession that look like amateur productions. They're, they're totally lacking the production finesse and the gloss of the best Hammer film. Um, they're really playing to the lowest common denominator by that point. And uh, they, it was a real shocking decline in quality. But then they came back in a big way, following year, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, Twins of Evil, Hands of the Ripper, Vampire Circus, Demons of the Mind, all beautifully made films. So they're continuing to make good films. To the Devil Daughter, contrary to what a lot of people seem to think, was an enormously successful film. It made a lot of money. The problem was that to get that movie off the ground, Hammer pretty much made a business arrangement with EMI in the UK and a German company, which uh, pretty much left them with a very small part of the profits and most of the profits went to EMI and to the German company. If they would have gotten all the profits, that probably would have given them a little wind in their sales and they could have made some more movies because they had plans. But when most of the money ended up going elsewhere, it was kind of similar to the, the arrangement that uh, Amicus had made with Cinerama in the 70s, where you had a movie like Tales from the Crypt, which was enormously successful. But again, they didn't really see a lot of it because most of it went to Cinerama. So sometimes it was just bad business deals too. It's interesting, too, since you mentioned uh, movies like The Exorcist and The Omens sort of being game changers for horror. I'm wondering, you know, a lot of times this term gets thrown around, and I'm not saying it's a bad or a good term, but people talk a lot now about elevated horror, right? And I'm not the biggest fan of that label because I, I think it implies that there wasn't serious uh, adult horror movies um, no. prior to, you know, movies like Get Out. And I like movies like Get Out, but... It seems like there were these serious horror movies that were attracting, you know, big name actors and sort of critical attention uh, throughout history. You know, um, you know, in the 70s, there was a spike in that. And then I think when Silence of the Lambs came out, that was another sort of spike in, oh, maybe well, we should take horror more seriously. Do you agree with that or my yeah, misreading? No. What usually happens is when when something is on a certain level, they say it's not a horror film, it's a psychological thriller. So uh, Silence of the Lambs. It's not a horror film. Uh, the Exorcist isn't a horror film. The Omen isn't a horror film. The Shining isn't a horror film. They're all horror films. Um, there's a meme that's going around now, uh, an interview with John Carpenter, where they mentioned this to him about elevated horror. And he just, I, I don't understand what they're talking about. And he does understand what they're talking about. He gets it. But his point is, it's ridiculous as a concept. You, you either, you're either in it for the right reasons or you're not. If you're approaching it as, well, I'm going to make a good horror film. I'm going to show everybody what they've been doing wrong, and I'm going to make something that is intelligent and that it has all the characteristics that you don't see in other horror films, which is usually just total nonsense because it is there in the best horror films. There have always been good and bad horror films. It has always been thus. You can go back to the 20s before they even had applied that term to it. They didn't really start calling them horror films. Dr. Frankenstein and Dracula in 31. It's always been that way. Um, there, you know, to to argue that this is some new thing, you know, go back to the '60s when you have Polanski making Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion, 
and tell me that those are not elevated films. Keeping Tom Psycho. I'm sorry. Yes, it is a horror film. So is The Birds. Um, these are are films that are accepted as classics now. Um, it's not a new concept that somebody makes a uh, intelligent, nuanced layer film. You know, they they talk about you know the sort of social commentary that's in some of these films. John Carpenter was doing that in the seventies and eighties. George Romero was doing it. Um, you know, Wes Craven was doing it to a certain extent. It's certainly Lucio Fulci was doing it too, and and various other people as well. So it's nothing new. Uh, what it is is a kind of comfort security blanket that people create for themselves, where they want to think, well, I don't really like horror films, but I like elevated horror films. I like I like the good ones. Well, I got news for you. I like the good ones too. <laughs> but you know, I'm not going to defend everything that's made. I'm not one of these people that says, well, we have to support the genre. We have to. We have to show support. No, you don't. I mean, if it's bad, it's bad. Just say so. It's okay. But it doesn't mean that, you know, that um, Jordan Peele exists on some kind of a level. There was a, going back to Carpenter, there was that uh, comment that somebody made that Jordan Peele was the first person uh, to ever make, you know, three masterpieces in succession. And, I think, uh, I think Peele actually took issue with that. Peele did take issue with that. He said, go watch John Carpenter's movies and get back to me. And he was absolutely right. Carpenter had done it. Romero had done it. Bava, Argento, um, Polanski, you know, working. I mean, if, depending on how you want to classify certain things. Um, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. But it's something that uh, it it kind of plays into the whole hot take mentality and, and the need for clicks that uh, is kind of driving things right now, which is unfortunate. With regards to Carpenter, I like how the title of uh, the, the book he worked on about Carpenter um, has, you know, nonconformist in its title. What makes Carpenter such a nonconformist director? Or why should we describe him in that way? Well, a lot of his films are just, you know, they're they're full of distrust of authority, which, of course, he's part of that generation. It was that thing that happened. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he's the generation that came about during the Watergate era. Yeah. Yeah. It's the late 60s into the 70s. It's... Um, it's that group of people, Carpenter, Argento, um, Romero, Toby Hooper, Wes Craven. They're all kind of former hippies um, who've seen their dreams of utopia going up in smoke. And so they're making, you know, dark and angry films that are reflecting this kind of uh, distrust of the zeitgeist. So it's something that is very much a part of him. But he's also somebody who he's kind of a contradiction in a way because he wants to get into the system. He wants to get into the Hollywood system and make films on a certain level. He was never content to make little scrappy, low-budget 16-millimeter films that would look and sound like crap. He was very insistent that films had to look and sound good. If you want them to be taken seriously, they've got to look and sound like real movies. So he wanted to be part of that. He wanted to have access to that machinery. But at the same time, he, with his distrust of authority, is also very distrusting of producers as well. So he was able, you know, rather amazingly, to get a... Uh, a thing going which doesn't happen all the time in america it is it is common it is indeed you know pretty much the norm in italy but it's not the norm in, in america that you have final cut over your movie uh where that would means that basically if the studio doesn't like it they can shelve it but they're not allowed to touch it they're not allowed to take anything out they're not allowed to add anything in um and he was able to maintain that on most of his films not memoirs of invisible man which is the one that he doesn't have his name above the title uh, because it was a very unhappy experience for him, although I think it's a much better film than it gets credit for. Um, but that was a movie he really didn't have control. But everything else, I mean, it's it's his movie right down the line. 
And again, that distrust of authority, that distrust of uh, establishment is very much part of his work. Well, e even a film like, you know, Halloween, like, I don't think people would see it as as making a social commentary or anything like that. And I'm not saying it is necessarily, but th there is something interesting about choosing to make a movie about, you know, a small American town, your your picturesque suburb. And, you know, oh, it actually has this dark side. Like, why did this kid kill people? You know, why, you know, why is this all? It's sort of like, you know, in a way, I think, you know, pushing back on the Norman Rockwell vision of suburbia. Yeah, he's doing it before David Lynch did with uh, Blue Velvet. I mean, and, and to be fair, I mean, you can go back to the 50s. Nicholas Ray did a brilliant film called Bigger Than Life with James Mason and Walter Matthau, which is very much about that kind of peeling back that that veneer and looking at the ugliness underneath. You know, that, that was a really fantastic film if you've ever seen it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's definitely there in that movie as well. We have the, the figure of authority uh, played by Donald Pleasance, the Dr. Loomis character, who who isn't really playing with a full deck. He doesn't really behave like a rational um, man. We like him. We, we, we want him. Yeah, but you kind of wonder if he's as crazy as Michael Myers, you know, the shape. He's, he's, he's Captain Ahab, basically. He's, He's this kind of relentless, and he becomes more so. And that, that, that was what happened in sequels, which, of course, Carpenter had nothing to do with. But that was the element that, that really was the driving force, is the obsessiveness. You know, he's pure evil, I must stop him. And that's, that's the whole way through. So he is kind of a zealot. He is kind of a, an, an extreme figure. And, uh, you know, he was the character more than anybody else in the film that Carpenter really focused his writing on, while Deborah Hill focused more on the writing of the girls. They wanted them to be realistic and Carpenter, you know, wisely uh, bowed to her, you know, obvious advantage in that area. So she kind of uh, focused more on the girls and he focused on Dr. Loomis and gave him these kinds of florid, um, intentionally over the top dialogue, which quite rightly realized you've got to have a good actor for it. Um, he tried to get Christopher Lee, Lee turned it down. He tried to get Peter Cushing, Cushing turned it down. They get Donald Pleasant. And uh, in the process, Pleasant, who's already made, um, a number of horror films by that point, but isn't really associated with horror. All of a sudden, he becomes, you know, uh, a, a horror icon um, into his 60s until the time he died. Transitioning into the, why I initially had you, I wanted to have you on was the, the term Euro horror. I don't know if you like that term or not, but what, what do people mean when they say Euro horror? Like, how is Euro horror different from, say, you know, the American, like, John Carpenter movies or the yeah. Wes Craven films or The Exorcist? Or, or even the British films we mentioned. What what sets Euro horror apart? I don't have a problem with Euro horror as a term. I don't like the term Euro trash. Uh, I think that's condescending. Um, I, it, it's it's certainly not a term that I use. I think that's you know, it's a, it's a nonsensical, meaningless term. It, another way. Of well, I, I, I was gonna just to add to that real quick. I I think there is this problem, especially when people talk about Italian cinema. People will people will talk about Italian genre cinema. And I know some people that will think, oh, it's just like all these Bruno Mattai, you know, ripoffs of uh, a, a movie blockbusters from the U.S. And really, I don't think that's really the case. I, I think you have the sort of Bruno Mattai directors, but you also have Argento and Lucio Fulci, who I think are doing something very different. Yeah, well, um, to go back to the first question, I think you could call it continental. Yeah. European horror that differentiates it from Hammer because you know it, it, you're you're talking about Italy, Spain, France, you know uh, 
Germany, different countries like that, part of continental Europe. So it is, it has, it definitely has a different flavor. Like I said before, um, those films tend to be more, I think, a little more atmosphere and a little more visual oriented as opposed to the Hammer uh, UK approach, which tends to be a little bit slightly more literate, slightly more, um, I hate to say conventional, but in a way, slightly more conventional storytelling tactics as opposed to more dreamlike, just anything goes approach that we see in these other movies. Your other point, you're absolutely right in insofar as there's a tendency to think these movies are ripoff. I think ripoff is a term that needs to be applied very carefully. Some of them are, but most of them aren't. Most of them are cash-in. Um, Lucio Fulci's zombie is a cash-in on Dawn of the Dead. It would not have existed were it not for the success of Dawn of the Dead, which came out in Italy as zombie. Um, Z-O-M-B-I, which translates as zombies. So, of course, in Italy, it's known as uh, Fulci's film is known as Zombie Dewey. Zombies, too. Even though it's not connected at all, it's completely different. And you can see what Lucio Fulci is doing in that film is something he talked about in interviews. He was looking back towards the mood and the atmosphere of films like I Walk With a Zombie, White Zombie, going back to the kind of voodoo, um, that, that kind of flavor, something that's a little bit more mysterious, a little more atmosphere-based. He really wasn't interested in trying to copy George Romero. Compare that with a film like Hell of the Living Dead by Bruno Mattei and Claudio Fragasso, where the, uh, the, the, the term ripoff is appropriate. Um, that's a movie that definitely there makes no mistake where its influences are coming from. It has its own charm. It's entertaining, but it's it, it's a ripoff in a way that zombie is not. The Italian uh, kind of approach, it's it summed up, it's called the Filoni principle. Filoni means stream. And basically what that indicates is there is some film that comes out that's very successful, and then there's going to be a stream of films that coming out until the stream runs dry. It just eventually people get tired of it. They don't want to see it anymore. So a movie like Dirty Harry comes out. All of a sudden we have a bunch of films that are coming out in Italy with rogue cops. Mauricio Burley, Franco uh, Nero, Luke Marenda, people like that are playing uh, cops who are sick and tired of all the bureaucratic red tape and they're going to take law into their own hands. And they're going to beat up all the kids on the streets. <laughs> it's proof of the point. Uh, so you get that. Uh, Dawn of the Dead comes out enormously successful. So we get a bunch of zombie movies. Sometimes the... Um, the model was Italian. I mean, to to a certain extent. I mean, you know, um, the, the the cannibal genre really kind of gets started with Umberto Lenzi's film *Man from Deep River*, um, which is a bit of a cash in on an American film called *A Man Called Horse* with Richard Harris. But the big hit, the one that really makes that into kind of a mini movement for a period of time, is Deodato's film *Cannibal Holocaust*. So that's an Italian film that that then gets kind of appropriately enough gets cannibalized. Uh, until that also runs dry and people lose interest in it. Um, so it's not unfair to say that it's a uh, it's it's an industry that's based very much on following commercial trends, but I would say that that's true of just about every film industry. Really. I mean, it's always the case. Right now we're being inundated with superhero movies because they're making money. Um, people ask all the time, when is this going to stop? It's going to stop when people stop going to see them. And as long as there are people out there that want to see them, then they're going to keep getting made. And it's as simple as that. Um, I asked, you know, when I interviewed John Carpenter, um, I, I'd said about at this time, I think I interviewed him in 2019. And um, he, at that time, you know, it was announced that there were going to be a, uh, a couple more Halloween movies coming that was supposed to end it. You know, there was going to be kills and ends. And I said, is that going to be the end? And he laughed and he said, if it makes money, probably not. So, I mean, it's, it's just true. Uh, somebody um, 
joke years ago that if you wanted to stop making you know, Dracula films, you had to drive the stake through the heart of the producer. That's the only way it's going to stop. They're going to keep making them as long as they make money. So one thing that's interesting to me about Euro horror is uh, we've gone over how it sort of has, has a sort of dreamlike quality to it, especially with, um, I would say, Fulci, uh, Argento, uh, Jess Franco. Uh, but one thing that's always interested me is we were talking earlier about, you know, guys like Carpenter and Craven in the U.S. Uh, were very affected by things like Vietnam and Watergate, and that shows in their films. Uh, were the politics going on in places like Italy and Spain also having an effect on figures like Franco and uh, Argento and, and Fulci? Like, it, it, it's the post-war era affecting them and their films. Fascism in a big way was a big looming presence because, um, you know, don't forget that uh, Des Franco, um, you know, is, is a Spanish filmmaker. He's uh, raised and, uh, you know, grows up in the era of uh, General Franco. Yeah, a no lot relation. of his films seem very obsessed with themes of like mind control and, and things like that. And I think it's related to living under Franco. Yeah, it definitely is. And he, he hated that. And that's why he ended up leaving. So for a long period of time, he's working in places like Germany, Spain, or not Spain, Germany, France, uh, Belgium. He, he's uh, Switzerland going all over the place until Generalissimo Franco dies. And uh, he's able to go back and he's a, he finishes out his career in Spain. Italy is the same thing. I mean, Italy's involvement uh, with uh, with uh, with Hitler and, and whatnot, the association between Mussolini and so forth in the uh, in the World War II uh, was a kind of stain of embarrassment for a long time, and uh, that that kind of fascist era left a very very deep mark on them, profoundly so. In the seventies, you have a lot of terrorist activities, uh, the Brigate Rosse. Um, you know, various bombings, various terrorist activities going on daily, kidnappings. I mean, all these things are spilling over into the Polizieski films, which are very political films. Um, some of them are more obviously serious about it than others, but there's a strong political element that goes through in a lot of these films. And a lot of the Italian filmmakers in particular are extremely leftist. Not all of them, but many of them are. Argento uh, and Fulci, for example, uh, Fulci described himself as a Marxist, uh, Argento as a communist, um, you know, Lenzi called himself a anarchist. So they're very, very left. And, uh, you know, uh, they, they're they working all kinds of subtle things into their films in terms of commentary on uh, the, uh, the corruption of the upper class, the bourgeoisie. You know, there's a lot of that stuff that's in the film. It's not always obvious. It's not always, but, you know, think about the Jolly for example, they're mostly set among affluent people who are really awful people. They're killing each other off. They're stabbing each other in the back. Most of them are already rich, but they want more. So it's always sort of grab and grab and grab. So it's there in a lot of the films, um, whether it's always articulated and, and kind of, you know, analyzed very deeply as they're writing them and preparing them. We don't know, but uh, it's definitely very, very political. Um, a lot of Italian films are extremely, extremely political. With, with regards to like... Um... Like, if you could give any examples, like concrete ones, like where do you see a politics coming into play with, say, Argento? Because I've had people say to me they can't figure out if Argento's reactionary or whether he's left wing. Oh, he's left wing. There's no question. If you look at, um, you know, uh, there's a running theme of this in Deep Red, for example, the the character played by David Hemmings and the character played by uh, Gabriele Lavia. Uh, Hemmings is a kind of pampered upper crust kind of a guy who's an artist who um 
he creates art because he he, he enjoys it. Um, the other guy is uh, kind of struggling, and he's uh, you know he's uh, sort of vaguely closeted homosexual, and he's living a very different kind of lifestyle. And he has a conversation with him at one point. And says, "I I do this because I have to. I have to survive." You're doing it because you enjoy it. You know, we're, we're coming from very different backgrounds. So that that is commentary that's throughout the film. Um, Tenebrae is set in a kind of vaguely defined, vaguely futuristic society where pretty much all the lower class has been obliterated. Uh, it's it's mostly set amongst very, very wealthy, well-to-do people who are living in the, uh, the EUR district in Rome, which was this kind of experiment that got started under Mussolini where they created these very sort of futuristic looking buildings, very clean, very precise, very pristine, you know, everything very, very immaculate. And uh, it's very deliberately set in that type of environment and, and sort of making commentary again on how nasty and how backstabbing these uh, upper crust types of people are. Uh, you can see it in, in Fulci's films as well. Um, you know, think of a film like Don't Torture a Duckling, for example, where the character played by Florinda Bulk and the way that she's treated as an outcast because she's different. Uh, in City of the Living Dead, the character of Bob, played by Giovanni Lombardo Radice, who again is treated very poorly and he's an outcast because he's different. And what happens to these people? They're, they're horribly murdered um, by, you know, sort of superstitious, uh, intolerant people who uh, profess to be kind of decent Christian people, but ultimately they're anything but. So it's definitely there. It's not always heavy-handed. It's not always very polemical and in your face in a way like an Oliver Stone film is. But if you look at it, you can see it. Um, you know, it, it's it's so much of the films, uh, the way that they're set amongst these kind of very affluent types of characters who are very, uh, you know, very well-to-do and are very pampered and so forth and see just how you know, indifferent they are to what's going on around them. You know, there are terrible things that are taking place and, and they just don't care about it. Yeah, one interesting film, I think, in that regard is um, Mario Bava's uh, Twitch of the Death Nerve or Bay of Blood, yeah. because in a lot of ways, that movie is sort of a commentary on, you know, people neglecting their own children. I mean, I don't want to spoil the ending, but yeah. yeah. No, it is. And it's a, it's a sort of a ecological statement, too, in the sense of, you know, uh, uh, being influenced by your environment, but also what, what happens to people who are looking to kind of obliterate the natural beauty in order to sort of put up skyscrapers and gas stations and stuff like that. So there's that kind of thing that's running through it too. Bava was slightly more apolitical. Um, I think he was, in many respects, he would have you know truly been defined as leftist, but he didn't really involve himself in politics. He wasn't as passionate about it as, as some of the others were, but, but Argento and Fulci certainly were. Um, Where do you place Diodato within that? Do you think his films have a certain politics or? Diodato is an interesting case. I mean, he's somebody who, um, you know, it's a little harder to read his films. I do believe he is, he is leftist. Um, Again, there are some that I'm aware that wouldn't necessarily fit that description, but I think it, it definitely is. Um, But again, sometimes the messages get a little bit muddled in some of the films because of, different ways that they're being pulled. I mean, if you look at something like um, live like a cop, die like a man, uh, it's such an outrageously, you know, sort of politically incorrect film. It could be seen as sort of vaguely fascist, but I think it's also done with tongue in cheek to a certain extent. So I think there is a little bit of a commentary there on the absurdity of that type of, uh, uh, that type of approach to justice. So I, I, I think you can make an argument for that. Sure. With regards to uh, going from, Bava 
to Argento. What leads to the, I, I guess for me, when I think of Bava, uh, I think of like the Gothic horror, um, Ricardo Freitas, another one. And later on they would do yellows, but how do we go from the Gothic Euro horror to these sort of violent yellows that are, uh, for people that don't know, the yellows are sort of these murder mysteries uh, with very beautiful women usually getting um, sliced up. They're they're proto slashers in a way. Yeah, there's a there's kind of a chain that's going from whodunits to film noir to the German creamy films, the Edgar Wallace films, and into the jally, and then from the jally into the slasher. So much so that some of the later jally, like New York Ripper, for example, uh, or Michele Suave's stage fright, could also be called slasher films quite easily. I mean. I love that you mentioned the crimmies because everyone always says that the uh, the the yellows are, are where it all starts for slashers. And I'm like, well, without the crimmies, I don't know if we get the yellows. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there's definite links along the way. Film noir too is very important because you think of something like Robert Siobhan's The Spiral Staircase, which is an enormous influence on Argento, Bava, and Lenzi, amongst others. I mean, there are elements in The Spiral Staircase, which is a 1946 film. Um, that really predate a lot of those those later movies. So, uh, and Hitchcock's in that mix too. Um, you know the the sort of expressionist filmmakers like Fritz Lang in particular. Um, it it all it kind of builds in a way, and it, it kind of becomes the snake that swallows its own tail. As I was saying, you know, stage fright's an interesting example because it's not really a mystery at all. I mean, the the identity of the killer is never in any doubt. So it's really, arguably, as as much a slasher as it is a, a giallo, but uh, I mean, Bava, Bava, I mean, there were, I should explain too, the term giallo, which means yellow, um, it comes from the fact that there is a series of books uh, published in Italy by a company called Mondadori, which are known for their lurid slipcovers, which are yellow. Um, and to, to an Italian audience, a giallo is a thriller. It's as simple as that. It, it just means a thriller. The specific type of films that we are talking about, um, I believe that they are referred to typically in Italy as giallo all'italiana. And this denotes something that is an Italian thriller. Um, it's usually something that's a bit lurid. It's something that's a bit pulpy. It's something that has, uh, it, not necessarily always violent. I mean, sometimes they are kind of psychosexual films, you know, the, the, uh, late 60s films like uh, Orgasmo, for example, or The Sweet Body of Deborah, which are very much based on Diabolique, the Clouseau film from the 50s. Um, these are films that uh, don't really have much in the way of bloodshed, but they have a lot of sort of psychosexual manipulation going on, a lot of sleaze and things like that. So there's all kinds of different jally. Um, but basically, Bava makes a film in 1962, it comes out in 63, called The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which, as the title will indicate, is kind of a bit of a send-up of Alfred Hitchcock. It's the first real kind of cinematic giallo, even though there have been films before it, like uh, The Facts of a Crime, for example, by uh, Pietro Jeremy, and uh, various other examples, uh, The Lady Killer of Rome by Ilio Petri. This is the first one that's kind of got that sort of pulpy vibe to it, slightly, you know, vaguely horrific in spots. So it's kind of the, the beginning of that. Bava's films really, unfortunately, were not successful in Italy at all, uh, with the exception of some of his, you know, non-genre, non-horror suspense things like, um, oh, Eric the Conqueror, for example, or um, Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs. Those films do well because, you know, Italian audiences responded to that, but they didn't respond to his thrillers at all or his horror films. He makes, a, after that, um, an anthology film called Black Sabbath, which has three segments in it. One of them is uh, called Telephone 
and that's another kind of Jallo in miniature form. And then Blood and Black Lace, which is the real first body count Jallo. It's the first one where you really have murder set pieces uh, for 90 minutes. You know, it's just one beautifully shot and executed murder scene after another. Again, set among very, very well-to-do people in very stylish environments, um, driven purely by greed. So these films start coming out in the 60s. They're kind of filtering out a little bit. There's a really interesting one by uh, Vittorio Salerno and Ernesto Gastaldi called Libido, which came out in the mid-60s. Very good film. Um, A few others. But they don't really start to come off commercially very successfully until The Sweet Body of Deborah in 68. And then, of course, Dario Argento comes along in uh, 1969, makes The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, comes out in 1970. And like Halloween, sort of tie everything together, is not a movie that's automatically successful right out the gate. These are both movies that built through word of mouth. Halloween and Bird with the Crystal Plumage did not have people lining up around the blocks right away. It took a while. But once they took off, they took off. And then from there, this baloney un unleashes and we start having all these movies with really wonderfully weird titles iguana with a tongue of fire lizard or woman's skin don't torture a duckling black belly of the tarantula everything all these different films coming out and uh not all of them are good but the ones that are good are really really good it's interesting you mentioned black sabbath because i thought this would be an interesting thread to touch on Uh, my understanding is that the aip the american release of uh black sabbath uh they like altered elements of it. Um, and the European version is actually somewhat more subversive in some of the, or more risque in some of the elements it touches upon. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how American releases and European releases differ at times. Well, you have to understand that in the sixties in particular, horror films in Italy and also in the UK were not intended for children. They were not designed to be seen by children. As a matter of fact, they were forbidden to children. So, Italian filmmakers, British filmmakers, they were making films for adult audiences. They were willing to push the envelope in terms of the content and so forth. In America, especially in the 50s, you know, you, you had places like American International that were really aiming their movies towards kids. They were, they were designed to appeal to um, either young children or, or young teenagers. And these, this was not the same audience, so it's it's skewed in a slightly different way. And you can see that the American international films tend to have a, a slightly campier quality to them, whereas the Hammer films and the Bava films and so forth are dead serious. Not always. I mean, Bava had a very impish sense of humor to come through his films, which to the death nerve, I think, is hysterically funny in spots, and it's meant to be. Um, but in Black Sabbath, what happens is because Bava's first uh, film as a director, his first official film as a director, Black of Black Sunday, had been very successful for AIP, American International Pictures. They decided to get in on the action on the ground floor, so to speak, by co-producing the film. And as part of co-producing the film, they're able to get Boris Karloff involved. Now, for a American audience, Boris Karloff, yes, he's Frankenstein's monster and all this. He's also on TV posting thriller. He's kind of an institution, and he's somebody the kids really enjoy seeing. So yeah, he's very conscious of the fact that they're making a film that they want their target audience to be able to go see, whereas Bob is making a film for a very different mindset. And so he makes a film that is very, very dark in many respects. Um, is dealing with subject matter that simply wouldn't apply for a kiddie matinee audience. The telephone segment that I mentioned, for example, is a perfect example of this. The original version it's about a uh, prostitute 
who is being terrorized by phone calls from her pimp, who is uh, who is in jail, and she doesn't realize that he's been released from jail. She's terrorized by these phone calls, and she turns to this woman who it is strongly applied in Italian version is her lover. You've got lesbianism, you've got prostitution, you've got adult elements that simply are not going to apply for a kitty net a audience. AIP is not happy about this at all. So their decision was, when they put together their own uh, edit of the film, to dub out those elements. Um, they, they, first of all, decide they're just going to completely rescore the film. They hire less actors to do a completely different soundtrack. It's kind of wall-to-wall music that plays the whole way through, very conventionally spooky music, very in-your-face type music, whereas Bava's approach was much more subtle. The structure of the film has completely changed. The order of the stories was changed because Bava realized that the real showstopper was the drop of water segment. And, you know, he, he decided that would be a good place to end the film. AIP wants to end the film with the Boris Karloff segment because he's their big star. So you've got to save that one for last. So the whole thing sort of shuffled around. It's re-edited. It's redubbed. Um, there is some footage that Bava shot, especially for the American international version that, that you don't see in the Italian version. Uh, but some of it was also shot by an unknown house director. They just kind of wheeled Boris Karloff in and put him against a black screen and made it look like a floating head to do an introduction, which is not the same as the version that you see in the Italian version. So it's a completely different film. And if you watch the original Italian version, it, I think it's a much, much more satisfying experience than the AIP version, which is really kind of watered down. I'd mentioned um, sort of these Euro-Gothic uh, type films. Um are, are there any that you would particularly recommend, like in contrast, if someone wanted to contrast, say, a Ricardo Freire uh, movie or or an early Bava film before the Yellows? What what would how would you what would you recommend, and what Yellows would you recommend in contrast to that? Well, I mean, there's certainly many many fine examples. I mean, one of my favorite Bava films is The Whip in the Body uh, with Christopher Lee and Dahlia Lavi, which is a really wonderful film that was uh, quite kinky and, and, and kind of you know, pushing the envelope for its time. Uh, but funnily enough, it has it has giallo elements in it. I mean, it is, at least in the Italian version, because again, they kind of screwed things up on the English dub a little bit, gave the game away. But the Italian version is structured a little bit more as a, as a mystery. Um, so it has a slight giallo vibe to it. It's not really a giallo, but it's got a little bit of that kind of thing going on. So in, in a way, all these elements almost blend together for most of these They kind of, of do. Films. They yeah. kind of do. I mean, there, there are gothic giallo there's uh, Libido, which I mentioned by Vittorio Salerno and Ernesto Gastaldi, uh, but also a movie called The Murder Clinic is another one that, that's another kind of you know old dark house type thing, but at the same time, it's a you know, murder on blue, so it's yellow as well. Um, the Whip and the Body, certainly. Um, Kill Baby Kill by Bava is fantastic. Um, Freda's uh, The Terrible Dr. Hitchcock and The Ghost, I think, are both really great. Uh, Antonio Margariti's Castle of Blood. Um, Mario Cayano's Nightmare. You're Castle. naming a lot of Barbara Still movies, and I love my Barbara Still. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, she did do quite a few of them, didn't she? And uh, you know, some definite highlights out of that uh, out of that particular genre. So, gothic wise, those are some of the best ones that that you're going to see. It's not really gothic, but I mean, it's not a giallo either. But you know, I should also mention the uh, Edgar Allan Poe anthology, Spirits of the Dead which has a segment by Fellini uh, called uh, Never Bet the Devil Your Head, which is really brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant piece of work with Terrence Stamp. Uh, borrows the image of the little girl in white um, as uh, the image of, of death, of evil. 
from Mario Bava's Kill Baby Kill, which which was acknowledged by Fellini, not so much by Fellini himself, by Fellini's wife admitted it. Um, it was taken from from Kill Baby Kill, so that's a great one too. I'm glad that you mentioned earlier the movie uh, Tenebrae uh, because yeah. I think it's a very interesting movie because in a way it's almost like Argento is commenting on the way people criticize his films. Uh, you know, in the sense of the thing we always hear about Yalos is these are just horribly misogynistic films. And um, in Tenebrae, he's almost poking the critics of those films saying, well, maybe I am this monster that you're describing me as, you know, because there's that parallel you can make to the Tony Franciosa character. But yeah. what, what do you think of that criticism that Yalos are nothing more than sort of these uh, misogynistic uh, pieces I, of violence. It's it's shooting ducks in a barrel, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of it's it's an obvious knee jerk thing that you can say. Um, I don't really. I think there are some definitely uh, that that I could understand that and would agree with. Giallo in Venice, for example, by Mario Landi, uh, Andrea Bianchi, strip nude for your killer. They're pretty tacky, and and I could definitely see calling those a thought. Argento, Bava. Indeed, even Fulci, who's often, you know, hammered as a real misogynist. Actually, if you look at the film and pay closer attention to them and actually give them their due, they actually present very complex portrayals, not just of females, but also of um, of uh, traditionally kind of uh, disenfranchised and uh, marginalized characters, homosexuals and things like that, at a period of time where that was fairly unusual. You get fairly sympathetic and complex. Uh, depictions of gay characters in their films uh, on occasion. Uh, the women in Baba's films and Argento's films are typically far more interesting than the men. You know, uh, they're very, Are there any examples well, you could give to, like, um, really... Well, I mentioned The Whip and the Body, for example, which is really built around this character played by Dalia Lavi, uh, who is totally driving the film. Uh, there's a his last film that he directed, a uh, feature film, a movie called Shock, where Daria Nicolodi is kind of in a similar vein. She's he's carrying the story. It's very sympathetic towards her, but it's also a very complex character. Um, you know, Black Sunday is is a very female-driven film. Uh, you know, many, many of his films are certainly Argento as well. We start thinking of films like uh, Deep Red. I mean, David Hemming is wonderful in the film. It's a fantastic performance, but he's a very ineffectual character. Daria Nicolodi as the as the journalist who he becomes involved with, who really is far more assertive, far more dominant. There's that fantastic sequence where, um, you know, he's a chauvinist. He's a terrible chauvinist in the film. That's the whole point is that's going to get punctured because she is a very strong feminist. And so she uh, challenges him to a game of arm wrestling at one point. And uh, she wins and he gets all pissy about it. You know, you cheated, you cheated. Of course you had to cheat. That's the only way that you could win. Um, so there's that kind of dialogue that goes on in the film. You have women who are um, who are the aggressors, sometimes women who are the victims, it's true. But there are also men who are the victims, too. I mean, the men are very often treated pretty shabbily in the films as well. So I think it's it's understandable in a way, and I can't pretend to understand how I would feel as a, if I were a woman watching these films. Maybe I would react differently. But looking at them the way that I see them, I don't think they're nearly as uh, guilty of that as they're very often claimed to be. I'm glad you mentioned Daria Nicolodi because I've always found her a very magnetic presence and very often sympathetic um, in her various roles. I'm wondering, what do you think her importance is uh, to the sort of Euro horror movies? Uh, because there's always been, I've always heard 
that she actually plays a much bigger role um, in Argento's, you know, in the creation of movies like Suspiria. How true is that? Oh, it's definitely true. She was enormously helpful. I mean, she was an actress who came from a very cultured background. Um, she was a theater actress. She had done big films uh, for directors like Francesca Rossi and Elio Petri. Um, so she was, you know, could be regarded as a serious actress. And she and Argento met on Deep Red, um, became very intensely involved for a period of time. Briefly, though, they, they say she's his wife. He, she was never married to him. He was married only once. Um, that ended in divorce um, right after Four Flies on Grey Velvet. And uh, he had various other you know, relationships after that. But Daria Nicolodi, of course, becomes the, the mother of his daughter, Asia Argento, who, who people will know. Um, she's uh, a very, very strong presence uh, during that period of time when they were together. Um, I believe that, um, you know, Argento, like many creative types, sometimes is a little, a little stingy with wanting to give credit to other people because, you know, ego and so forth comes into it. But I think Nicolotti definitely steered him in the direction of doing something like Suspiria. He'd never made a supernatural horror film prior to that. After Deep Red, it was kind of like, I've, I've done as much as I can do with the Jallo for now. I've got to try something else. She kind of encourages him, tells him, um, you know, a couple of stories, uh, one involving her grandmother who had attended this sort of strange dance academy and, you know, tells him this. And they, um, they, they consult uh, the, the work of Thomas de Quincy and they come up with this idea, you know, this, this, uh, this mythology, three mothers, three evil influences that pretty much control the world in various different forms and um, come up with the screenplay for Suspiria, which she originally had hoped to star in. The fact that 20th Century Fox became involved uh, providing some money and, and guaranteeing American distribution, um, they dictated they wanted an American actress. She was livid over that, and that kind of really put the um, put the damper on their relationship. They, they continued to work together for years after that, but their their relationship really pretty much ended uh, on on uh, on Suspiria because there was a lot of enmity there as far as. Uh, not getting to play the lead role, and then she was worried he wasn't even give her credit for co-writing the script, which he ultimately did. Uh, so she's very involved in um, in Suspiria, Inferno, which is the follow-up, and continuing working with him through the uh, end of the '80s uh, because they were they were seen as kind of a they were a very powerful presence in the Italian press during that time. They weren't necessarily Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, but they were a celebrity couple. They were an item. And it was important that they continue to work together, even though there was a certain point where she was she was convinced that on opera, for example, he was trying to kill her um, because, you know, the elaborate death scene that he has in the film. There's a lot of paranoia and everything that was going on and, and, and a lot of unpleasantness. But she had a tremendous, tremendous impact on Argento for that period of time. So with regards to Suspiria, I think it's interesting because I... I've always heard people try to say that I think people sometimes use the term yellow a little bit more broadly than I would in that I, I think some people, when they say yellow, they're just referring to any Italian horror film. And I, I mean, I think there's elements of a yellow in Suspiria, but it's it's also much more a dive into the fantastique. Um, could you talk about that dive into the fantastique that happens with yeah. uh, Suspiria? Well, first of all, I would agree. I mean, for some people, if it's an Italian film and somebody gets knifed, it must be a giallo because, you know, of course. 
uh, I disagree with that. It is, it's a tough genre to really kind of define. And I don't think anybody is necessarily going to always agree. You know, when I wrote my book, So Deadly, So Perverse, I, I opted not to include certain titles and I would have people bitch at me. Why didn't you put Short Night of the Glass Dolls? Because I didn't really think it fit. It's just my opinion. So there is a certain subjectivity there. But uh, Suspiria is a supernatural horror film through and through. And um, like I said before, the, the reason that Argento decided to try that was because, you know, he's done, um, at this point, he's made five features. Four of them have been jolly. Um, Bird of the Crystal Plumage, The Cat of Nine Tails, Four Flies and Gray Velvet, and Deep Red are all jolly. He also makes a film called Le Cinque Giornate which is a kind of semi-comic, semi-serious, political, historical film, which was a flop. Deep Red's a huge hit, but it's like, I've, I've taken this form about as far as it can go. I mean, it's virtually an art film, really. I mean, it, it, is, it is such a, a beautiful, inventive movie. It was like, I can't keep doing this. I've got to try something different. So to do a supernatural horror film was a very concerted um, and a very deliberate move. So I think Argento himself will be the first to say, no, it definitely isn't a jello. It does have some of the elements. There's kind of, you know, the, um, the half-heard clue that bugs the girl throughout the movie. Um, there are a string of murders. There's the black gloves and all that. But it's rooted in the supernatural. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a horror film about witches and witchcraft and the occult. It's not a jello, not from my definition anyway. Yeah. I, you know, another thing I love about that movie, I know you said that the movies don't focus on acting as much necessarily in Italy, but uh, I always w was like uh, deeply um, affected by the presence of Jessica Harper in that movie. That's probably my favorite role of hers. Uh, mm -hmm. Just the, the the way she looks throughout the film, she does give oh, this yeah. like, uh, she, she has this ethereal sense to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the part that Daria wanted to play herself and it would have been a very different film and I'm sure I mean, I'm sure she would have been good, but I, I really like what Jessica Harper does in the film, too. I think she's really good. Although, for my money, the movie is really stolen by Alita Valley as Miss Tanner, you know, the really nasty teacher who is, uh, she's a terrifying presence in that film with those, those very white teeth and the way that she smiles and uh, the very severe sort of fascist-looking outfit that she's wearing throughout the film. Again, political stuff is in there. It's, it's kind of layered in uh, for those who are, who are tuned into it recognize it, that he's making some little sort of commentaries on certain things here and there. But um, yeah, I mean, if, if Daria Nicolodi had played that part, it'd be a very different film. But uh, Harper is really able to convey, convey that kind of wide-eyed, doe-eyed innocence really beautifully, which I think I, I think is why she ultimately was the right choice for that part. It's interesting, too. Maybe you can clear this up for me, because uh, something I've always heard about Argento, and I don't know if this is true, if this is like a myth, uh, but I've heard people say that he really didn't get much of a critical evaluation until the 80s when he made Phenomena. Is that true or is that a misconception that people have? Uh, I don't think Phenomena had to, anything to do with anything. As a matter of fact, Phenomena was not terribly warmly received by the critics, although it was a huge hit at the box office. All of his films, with the exception of uh, La Cinque Giornate, which I mentioned before, which was a, a very Italian film, a very Italian subject, and a movie that was never exported uh, for that reason, um, they'd all been huge hits at the box office. They'd all done really well. He was—he's an interesting case because you know he—he he makes his first film when he's 29 years old. Um, he, up until that time, he has been a film critic. He's written about film. He's interviewed various people. He's interviewed Fritz Lang. He's interviewed Christopher Lee. Uh, 
John Houston, all kinds of different people. Um, he kind of charms his way into Sergio Leone's circle, um, gets a, a story credit with Bernardo Bertolucci on Once Upon a Time in the West, starts writing films, has no interest in directing because he says he's uh, kind of an introvert. He's not somebody who really see himself going onto a set commanding crew, but decides with Bernardo Crystal Plumage that I don't want to trust this to somebody else. They're just going to screw it up, so I'd like to do it myself. It's a big hit. And that puts him in a, in a position where he's able to become in the truest sense of the term, an auteur, the, the guy who writes and conceives and executes his own film from the ground up. You know, for years, he's creating his own subject matter. He is making very much the films that he wants to make the way he wants to make them. People like Bava, Colby, Lindsay, they're kind of hired hands in a way. They're kind of obliged to kind of take things at different points. But that doesn't negate auteur status. It doesn't necessarily mean that you, you know, just because you're a working director, you can't fit that criteria. You can, if your films reflect your personality, which, which those films, you know, the films that those guys did do that. Um, but Argento is able to kind of build himself almost into an institution, very hugely successful. He becomes a celebrity in Italy. I mean, he's a, a yeah, I've often person. heard it said that he's almost like the Spielberg of Italy. He's like a rock star, you know, in the 80s. He's big. He's huge. Everybody knows what he looks like because he did the Hitchcock thing. He hosted a TV series in the 70s called The Door in the Darkness, um, which made him into – everybody knows what the guy looks like. He can't go anywhere without being mobbed by people who want to get his autograph, which he loved. He wanted that. Bava never wanted that. Bava was very shy. Bava was, was very self-conscious. He didn't want that kind of attention at all. Um, Argento wanted it. He got it. He knew exactly how to do it. So, he, I mean, he's – He's somebody who I think um, his movies were enormously successful. He achieves a certain level of respect and a certain level of celebrity. I do think that his films were somewhat fairly assessed when they were coming out, at least to an extent. But it really depends. I mean, the, the fans certainly turned on him in a big way in, at, at the end of the 80s. Uh, a lot of people seem to think um, in the same way that they think with John Carpenter, the same thing that you know, around 1988, they just kind of lost their touch. Everything they did afterwards was terrible. Do you think there's a value to some of those later um, Argento films? Because I, I think for a lot of horror fans, after opera, people are like, oh, he hasn't made a good film since. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't think that like the Sendall syndrome, once I saw it in a good print, was necessarily that bad. Like, were there any of his 90 films that impressed you? 90s, I, I like them all, actually. I think Sven Austin okay. one of the best films he ever made. Um, I think it's his darkest, most disturbing film. Um, it's a movie I love. I, I, and again, you know, as you say, the fact that they finally put out a good-looking version of it will hopefully help. Um, I like, I'm one of the few people in the world who likes the version of Family Opera. It's a completely deranged movie, but it's knowingly tongue-in-cheek. You and, and I, I are people, on the same wavelength. <laughs> people watch that film thinking it's going to be a serious movie, and they laugh at it and it's like it's meant to be funny. I don't think Dracula was meant to be funny, so I will say that one is pretty lousy. I thought that was terrible, but uh, I, I trauma two evil. His half of two evil eyes is outstanding with Harvey Keitel. I think that's fantastic. Trauma is a good film. Um, uh, Sleepless, The Card Player, they're fun films. I enjoy them. Uh, he did a couple of episodes of Masters of Horror, uh, Jennifer and Pelt, which I love Pelt. I thought that was fantastic. And his most recent film, Dark Glasses, I think is really good. I think it's the best. I actually love Dark Glasses. So I like it. I think it's the best one he's done since Spendall Syndrome. It's not great, but it's good. 
and and 21st Argento is that's good enough. It's good. I like that. I thought it was a really solid piece of work uh, with some really interesting kind of subtextual elements to it as well. So, no. What, what I, were the interesting subtextual elements for you? I, because for me, well, what made I, dark real quick, if I could, what made dark glasses interesting to me was, um, you know, it's 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 a movie that comes out after COVID, and it really is a movie about two people that have to rely on each other. It's very relational. It's a blind woman and like an uh, an Asian kid that have to work together in order to overcome a killer. And it's very it, it's about cooperating in order to overcome a problem. I thought that was a very interesting uh, aspect of the movie. Yeah, and that's that's part of that's definitely part of what I like about the film. I mean, it's a script he wrote twenty years earlier. It's something that had been sitting in the drawer for a long time. He had intended to do it after. Uh, I, I think after. I think after uh, Sleepless, he was supposed to make it, but then unfortunately, it, it got tied up in a bankruptcy thing because Tetsu, uh, Mario and Tutorial Tekigori, their production company, you know, uh, went bankrupt. There were all kinds of problems, and the script got tied up in that. And for years, it was something he really wanted to make. Um, it was a script that he had talked about often in interviews. That it was something he really wanted to make. It's a it's a slight story. I mean, it's a short film compared to his other movies. It's, it's not even quite an hour and a half long fairly short but that's not a bad thing um but i think the covid aspect is uh you know probably what made the film a lot more interesting that he made it when he made it because you know covid hit um he was certainly one of the people who was really legitimately frightened he wasn't leaving his apartment for a long time um you know he's an older man he's got to be careful he doesn't want to catch it because it's probably going to kill him and uh so he's he's kind of isolated and during that time the idea of revisiting that script comes to him. And I think he, during that time, he really deepened it. I mean, the relationship, the idea of a relationship between the blind person and the seeing person is something you can take all the way back to the Cat of Nine Tales, Carl Malden's character, the relationship between Carl Malden and the little girl called Cookie. Or she calls him Cookie, and his little the little girl's name is Lori. Um, so that element's there. There are other elements, too, that kind of echo earlier films, you know, the scene of the dog for Paul's Suspiria, of course. Um, but it's it's him going down that road again of the familiar kind of tropes. It's not really a mystery after a certain point. It's not really in the conventional sense, but it's working within the jello. It's, it's bringing those elements into the 21st century. Again, kind of this idea of isolation, of loneliness, of characters who can't communicate with one another, people who are using one another or being used by other people. It's no coincidence that the film revolves around a prostitute. Um, who is accustomed to being treated like a like a piece of meat. Although one of the interesting things about the film is the kind of sensitive relationship she has with a couple of her kind of regular, you know, people who are just kind of lonely guys who are just looking for a little bit of, you know, not always just necessarily sex, but a little bit of connection with somebody that they have to pay for it, but it's there. Yeah, I um, felt like but, it was, I mean, maybe this is overstating it, but it just felt like a very hopeful film to me in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, it's a sweet film in its way. Funnily enough, I mean, it's incredibly gory in a couple of spots, but overall, it's really not. It's it's more um, exciting and dynamic. I mean, it's it's paced really well. There's no fat on it. It just it, it's lean and gets straight to the point. But it's that sweet relationship between uh, the lead and the little uh, the little boy, and uh, yeah, I mean, it ultimately it has a kind of hopeful quality to it, but it also has a, a really kind of melancholy quality to it as well, which I think is really affecting. So. I mean, I'm not surprised. Of course, it comes out and some people are are crashing it, you know, saying it's terrible. I, I don't know. I thought it was good. I, again, his last three before it, I didn't like at all. So I really was kind of like, no, I don't know. I don't know. 
but I sat down and watched it and I said, yes, this is, this is much more like it. So thank God his last movie won't be dragged. So before we close out, I just wanted to cover um, two more directors that we only sort of mentioned in passing. And the, the first one is um, Lucio Fulci, because ever since I was a teenager, I've been fascinated by Fulci. And I, I think most people look at him as almost like the Salvador Dali of horror, but I, I, I think there's more to it than that even. Uh, I, I think the way he f- handles the fantastic um, is, is very interesting. Maybe you could comment. What do you think the relevance or uh, critical importance of uh, Lucio Fulci is? Well, Fulci is another interesting case, a man who had been directing films for 20 years before he makes his first real horror film with zombies. I mean, there are elements of horror in Don Torture Duckling and Lizard Woman Skin and the Psychic. Uh, well, even yeah, before he does those movies, he's still, he did a lot of like comedies, like I Maniac, I think with uh, Barbara Still and a lot of those, yeah. Yeah, yes, I mean, which was an anthology film, funnily enough, and it's to Amicus, if you like. Um, he specialized in comedies, he made musicals, he made western, he made, he worked in just about every genre, you know, he, he had kind of typical work director in Italy career in that sense. Um, he's, he's hopping from genre to genre. The key thing is he does them all really well. He doesn't really embarrass himself in any of the genres he handles. Um, he never really had a particular fascination with horror. It wasn't something he really wanted to do. Zombie kind of came along. It wasn't even intended to be his movie. It was supposed to be directed by Enzo G. Castellari. Castellari said, you know what? I really don't think this is going to work for me. But I'll tell you what, Lucio Volci kind of needs, needs a little bit of a boost. And I think he would do a good job. So you should hire him. And they did. So Volci owed him a big debt of gratitude for sure. It reinvents him in the 80s as the uh, so-called godfather of gore, although that really was Herschel Gordon-Lewis, but it's a term that they applied to him because he's Italian, so of course, godfather, how clever. Um, I I think there's aspects, uh, by the way, not not to interrupt you, but I think there's aspects of zombie that really get overlooked in the sense of, um, you know, people always talk about the zombie versus shark scene, and I guess because they find it funny, but there's aspects of that movie that still get to me like the i mean the the eyeball scene like yeah. the, it's really well done and very disturbing well i mean ocular violence you, you could trace that all the way back to uh beatrice Tenchi, which is one of the movies he was really proud of in 1969 a movie that uh uh was a big flop in its time but it's definitely one of his best films um you know and 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 it's uh it's there in other films that he did too um that scene is uh an extraordinary piece of work because it's set up in such a way that you're convinced he's going to cut away. Um, inevitably, you're going to have to. You're not going to show that. There's no way. And all of a sudden, oh, my God, he went there. So that's what really, you know, he's he's very popular with a lot of the sort of punk culture and the kind of uh, uh, metal culture and so forth. People who are kind of rebellious, they respond to Fulci because Fulci was a very rebellious filmmaker. Well, he also, I think he worked on much lower budgets than St. Argento, right? Uh, after a certain point now in the earlier days in the 60s and 70s late 60s if you look at some of the things he did then like perversion story or lizard woman skin um those were very respectably budgeted films and he had adequate shooting schedules for them zombie starts this period in the early 80s where he's cranking out one horror movie after another they're low budget but they're positively lavish compared to the things he ended up having to do at the end of his life which unfortunately you know I'll say, first of all, I think the later films, many of them are better than they often are given credit for. But part of the problem is they were made very, very cheap, very, very quick because the Italian film industry had changed. It all kind of collapsed. Uh, Most of the directors had gone into working in television. 
they were making movies. Sometimes they really didn't want to make. Some of them retired because they just couldn't, you know, they just couldn't keep it up anymore. Uh, they were expected to make things that they had no interest in making. And Fulci uh, had a lot of health problems. He had contracted hepatitis. He had had uh, uh, major heart surgery, all kinds of different problems. Diabetic, uh, became diabetic. Um, so he kind of was in a position where he needed to work. He had to keep working. And he was obliged sometimes to make films that he really, you know, in, in happier days, he probably wouldn't have made. Something like Zombie 3, for example, which he only partway finishes. Um, he finishes off his work. It's made in the Philippines, sweltering heat. He's miserable. He's retaining fluid in his stomach because he's very sick. He has to get his fluid drained on an almost daily basis. He's miserable. He's crabby. He's yelling at everybody. Everybody hates him. And it's just such an unhappy film. He gets out of there. And then it's uh, taken over by Bruno Mattei and Claudio Fragasso. And they shoot a good chunk of the movie, even though it says it's a film by Lucio Fulci. It's not really. It's only partially his. So that's a movie he never would have made if, if he could have said no to it. What led to, I guess, this... I, I feel like there's a period in the 90s where th there's just this massive drop-off. Like, in the 80s, you had a lot of these filmmakers like... Antonio Margheriti and and uh, Lucio Fulci just cranking out one after another, and things start to really seem to slip off in the '90s. You know, and you're getting the last gasp of a lot of these Italian genre films. You know, I think um, there was just a Blu-ray release of that movie, Fatal Frames, which was kind of like the the last of the Allos in the '90s in in a weird way. Um, what led to maybe the downfall of um, some of these like Italian genre films? It really started in the '80s. What happened was. Um television became a much bigger force um television in italy there had been kind of a monopoly for years there was one network and then all of a sudden there were different networks that came about and they made deals with different film libraries different producers so they had access to all these movies people all of a sudden didn't have to go to the movies anymore to see movies they could just sit at home and watch something for free they could watch a fellini movie for free well why would i want to go pay for something so that ends up happening um a lot of the uh uh the money is just not there anymore. A lot of the producers are pulling out. A lot of the foreign investment's gone. Um, you're, you're no longer getting money coming in from other countries and so forth. So they're forced to make movies on a string, or they're forced to make movies they don't really want to make. Some some of these directors end up going into porn. Some of them go into uh, Joe make, D'Amato, yeah. Joe D'Amato, enthusiastically, Joe D'Amato. Joe D'Amato, he, he went there. He made a lot of porn movies, and uh, God bless him for it. That was fine. But there were some directors who ended up having to delve into things like that. They weren't happy doing that at all. They really didn't want to be doing things like that. Um, you had directors who really, you know, they were they were obliged to follow trends they didn't really want to follow. Lindsay, for example, ends up going into horror films. He didn't really want to make horror films. He didn't care for them. He wasn't interested in them. But he did them. He did them to the best of his ability, but they're underfunded. Um, they're kind of half-baked, and so they, they have their flaws, but they also have their charm everything is kind of collapsing. I mean, it was hard enough even for a Fellini to get financing in, in a certain point after the 80s. At a certain point, he's making things for television. A lot of these directors are going into television. Fulci ends up making some movies for television that are so violent, they can't show them on TV. So they end up just going straight to video. Um, and a lot of these things are just sort of pathetically underfunded. And you're no longer seeing the best things anymore because they just don't have the time and they don't have the money. And a lot of the people that were capable of giving them the best results are kind of priced out of the competition. So they're working on bigger movies, whereas people like Fulci are kind of obliged to keep struggling along, scraping by, making little movies as best they can. 
So before we close out, the other director I wanted to briefly touch on because he's so, I think he's controversial uh, to even talk about is um, Jess Franco, because yeah. I know so many people that will just say, what do you mean Jess Franco is, is an artist? Uh, they'll just yeah. say to me, oh, no, all his films are trash. I don't, what, I've seen 12 of his films. I don't get it. Why do you like this guy? But I, I think there is something very interesting about Jess Franco, especially when you start watching his films back to back to back. It's like it's like he's making the same films over again. He has the same obsessions and they sort of blend together. He just feels like a guy that loves making movies. And there's something like endlessly fascinating about Franco to me. So if you could comment on him. Well, I think, you know, he's he kind of runs counter to what we tend to think of as great filmmakers, because we tend to think of people like Kubrick, for example, who would do take after take after take in order to get perfection. He always drove for perfection. Franco wasn't interested in perfection. Sometimes Franco wasn't even much interested in the film he was making because he would have an idea for another movie and then all of a sudden his attention would be on that movie. But he's got to finish this one. And, you know, he'd be given uh, $100,000 to make a movie, but he's got another movie he wants to make. So he'll only spend $50,000. He'll pocket the rest and he'll go make the other movie. The producer will find out that he's misappropriated the funds and get all pissed off about it. But he's, he's on, ended up making this other film, um, which did happen on multiple occasions. I mean, what can you say about a man who at his peak was able sometimes to make about 10 movies a year, um, which is absolutely unheard of. But because he worked the way he worked, he was a jazz musician and he always described himself as a jazz musician who made films. So if you know anything about jazz, you understand the whole concept of sort of riffing, taking an idea and just going with it and just sort of ad-libbing and improvising and building things around it. Sometimes his films are difficult to warm to because they're all over the map and Sometimes, you know, it starts off as one thing and it veers over here and it veers over there. He does these really incredibly languid sequences that just run for ages. And when it works, it works. And when it doesn't work, you just want to claw your eyes out. So Franco is responsible for making, I think, some of the most fascinating movies I've ever seen. He's also made some of the worst films I've ever seen. But I, I love him dearly because nobody loved the process of creating more than he did. He just had to constantly have a movie going. It had to be something. Always a rotation, always coming up with a new story, a new script, um, sometimes written on the back of a cocktail napkin, but getting something going, five, six projects percolating all at once, and just fascinating. I mean, the best work is really, really fantastic. Yeah, especially, I, I think he had more money, especially in the 70s. There's also, I think people don't realize, he made some films that weren't even like, straight up genre films you know like a film like yeah. venus and first to me is very interesting it's almost like an art house movie that's one of my top 10 favorite films actually i love, love that film it's my favorite franco movie um the sequence where dennis price is visited by by the wanda uh, maria Rome. i think it's the best sequence he ever made in any of his films i just love it dearly um pure, pure cinema no dialogue just music editing visuals it's fantastic um that was part of a group of films he made for a producer called Harry Allen Towers. And Harry Allen Towers was a strange figure in many respects, but he was the one who produced a series of films for Franco that were seen by more people uh, and that had bigger names in them. Christopher Lee. Um, like the Count Dracula movie, right? Yeah. Count Dracula, Eugenie, the story of her journey into perversion, 99 women, Justine, uh, the bloody judge, Venus and furs and the two Fu Manchu films and um, uh, the girl from Rio. So they all have kind of name actors in them. Uh, they all kind of had a certain degree of exposure, either theatrically or on video. 
Um, they're not all among his best, but Venus and Furs is absolutely brilliant. Um, Eugenie is a really good film, too. Uh, I like his version of Dracula. I mean, it's, it's terribly undernourished. It's terribly underfinanced, but that's not his fault. He made the best film that he could under those circumstances. So, I, I, you know, Christopher Lee was, was not a man who would mince words. If Christopher Lee didn't like something, he would say so, which really annoys some people because they say, oh, he was just always bitching all the time. Well, he was, he was being honest. Um, he liked Franco. He always said, I think he's much better than people give him credit for. He's made some strange films, and I, I didn't have anything to do with those porno movies. But uh, I, I, you know, he said, I really think he's a very talented, very creative person. And uh, a lot of the people who work with him just absolutely loved him, said he was a lot of fun and very, very creative. What do you think, um, just to close out here with, with regards to Franco, uh, what do you think of how Franco women in the Franco sort of film universe, uh, because I, you know, I, I know people say, um, you know, he has a very voyeuristic sort of, uh, view of women, but I don't, the women in his movies are often, I find them very sympathetic. And, uh, you know, I, I, I am often like rooting for them, even though oftentimes they're going to be doomed, you know, it goes back to what I said before about Bava, Argento, and Fulci. I mean, really, the movies are very often, especially with Franco, are driven by strong female characters. Um, Venus and Furs, Succubus, Virgin Among the Living Dead, uh, Eugenie, Desaad. I mean, most of his best films are built around female protagonists who are, you know, they're, they're sympathetic to one degree or another. Sometimes they're they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Sometimes there's a mix. Um, but you always get the impression that he's much more interested in the women in his films than he is in the men. Not not always just in a purely sexual way, too. Yeah, there are a lot of scenes of women lolling around naked and, and shots of vaginas and everything else in his movies. Um, but, I mean, that's just him being who he is. I mean, you know, Tarantino works his fetishes into his films, too. It's there. Uh, whether whether he wants to acknowledge it or not, it's there. And it's there with Franco. Franco always was very upfront and very honest about it. He, he said, I, you know, my camera is like my eye. I'm showing what I want to see. I'm, I'm focusing on what I want to focus on. And I think his films really are very, very uh, concerned with interesting, complex, and uh, frequently very dynamic female characters. In closing, just a general overview here. For, for people that haven't seen necessarily these type of, of Euro films, what would you say uh, to a person who hasn't seen these films? Like, why should we be acknowledging this type of cinema more? Well, I mean, it's all subjective, obviously. At the end of the day, some people, you know, that you, you, you'll never win them over. Um, Italian films, for example, are very difficult for people to grasp sometimes because of the dubbing. Um, you know, what I, I, I get a kick out of the people who are really pretentious about it too, and they say, I only watch it in the original Italian. You do realize most of these films were shot in English, um, so they're all dubbed in one way or another. It doesn't really, there's no original soundtrack. It's not like an American film where you have live sound. Um, there are exceptions. Uh, there, there, there are, there are exceptions, but um, they're, they're very much movies that are celebrating the offbeat and the magical, and there's just nothing else quite like them. If you can get into that vibe and get into that headspace, they're adventurous, they're creative, they celebrate the visual, they celebrate um, the atmospheric, they celebrate uh, the dreamlike. And I think they force us to sometimes acknowledge that there are different ways of telling a story, that it doesn't have to be the way it always is in American films. 
mainstream American films. I mean, I'm not talking about David Lynch. I'm talking about, you know, what you typically see at the Cineplex. Everybody thinks this is how you're supposed to tell a story. There are other ways of telling stories. And I think that's one of the really valuable things that these movies does is it shows you that it is possible to take something that might sound really thin on paper, but it can end up being really, really fascinating and rich if you're open to it. Well, Troy Howarth, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, I'm going to have to have you go on again at some point because I did not realize that you wrote a uh, a book related to Klaus Kinski, who's one of my favorite actors. Oh. We'll have to talk about that at some yeah. point. But um, uh, if you could, maybe you could let my listeners know uh, about your latest book on Umberto Lenzi and uh, anything else you're working on, anything you want to plug. Uh, well, I've always got, I'm kind of like Jess Franco, I guess. I've always got things going. Uh, I've always got projects percolating. Um, yes, the new book is Make Them Die Slowly, the kinetic cinema of Umberto Lenzi. Uh, it's about the Italian director who um, pretty much worked the 60s, 70s, 80s, into the very early 90s. Um, another director like Fulci, who just hopped from genre to genre, whatever was popular, he dabbled in it. Um, particularly in the, um, he did most of his best work in both the Giallo, but also the Blitzieski, which is, uh, you know, very distinctively Italian strain of sort of cop. Uh, crime movies uh, from the 70s did some really fantastic films made some really good adventure films western films you know various different things uh, also some notorious films like Hannibal Ferox uh, which is a, a uh, you know particularly nasty and vicious film Hannibal film but um, that book only just came out in October um, so it's it's just starting to sort of filter out there into the world right now I'm also working on a book with an Italian film scholar named Eugenio Ercolani it's called Unsung Heroes of Italian Cinema, uh, which is going to focus on four directors who didn't make a lot of films as directors. So it would be difficult to make a, a book devoted to any one of these four people because they didn't Who really are the direct. four people? Well, the four people, uh, Eugenio is writing about uh, uh, Giulio Petroni, who is actually his grandfather. Uh, Giulio Petroni, who directed Death Rides a Horse and uh, Tepepa, um, very, very fine filmmaker. Um, and also about a director named Franco Rossetti, who's who's really, really pretty obscure, but made some interesting films um, and had a hand in writing Django, uh, the, the Sergio Pubochi classic. And the two directors I'm writing about are Massimo D'Alemano, who directed uh, movies like What Have You Done to Solange? What Have They Done to Your Daughters? Um, and uh, The Night Child, a really fascinating director who'd been a cinematographer. He shot Sergio Leone's first two westerns, for example. So very talented director, um, very mysterious character, uh, not a lot really known about him, so trying to sort some of that out. And the other director, Vittorio Salerno, I've already mentioned him a couple of times. He co-directed Libido, uh, but he also directed a couple of really good crime films in the 70s, like Know the Case is Happily Resolved and Savage 3. So those four directors, um, four sections of the book, um, You know, he's doing his two. I've, I've already written mine, actually just finished. Uh, although I'll continue tinkering with it. Um, so that, that will be coming out sometime next year. And uh, I'm also starting work on a book about the director, Alberto DiMartino, um, who directed films like The Antichrist, um, you know, uh, Strange Shadows in an Empty Room, um, and so forth. So uh, lots of projects in the works. Thank you again, Troy Howard. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with film historian 
Troy Howarth, and that you'll consider checking out his new book, Make Them Die Slowly, The Kinetic Cinema of Umberto Lenzi. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. I hope you enjoyed the Parallax Views Spooky Season specials, and I want to wish you a very happy Halloween. With that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices to the part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft? To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And... Happy Halloween.